Hello, Disruptors. This is Mike Satoshi with Sharing in the Disruption Podcast. And I'm going to start off with some news today. Um, I'm going to try to leave the podcast off with news and then kind of have like a few feature things that we talk about in disruption, whether it's technology or crypto. So, uh, starting off today, we've got the video space. As I covered last week, I think we're going to have a transition back to some of the work from home uh, stocks and plays as people are a little fearful of the Delta variant. You've got Zoom trying to keep up with Microsoft Teams. Um, I think Zoom's a better product, but Microsoft obviously has almost kind of a monop- somewhat of a monopoly over business uh, technology and software. They can just kind of slap on their own version of Zoom or Slack or whatever um, in Teams into their existing software, and it doesn't have to necessarily be better. It's just um, it can be like given for free. Uh, combined with all their other software, which gives them an advantage over Zoom because maybe Zoom has more of a niche product and they really have to differentiate to give companies reason to spend that extra money to use them. Um, So you've got Zoom acquiring a company called Five9, um, and that actually kind of gets them into, makes them go more horizontal into other areas. 5.9 5.9 is kind of like a cloud call center kind of thing. Like, um, it's it's more of like a customer management platform. Um, so it, it just puts, it gives Zoom more offerings to make them more enticing. Also kind of makes them competing a little bit with uh, Salesforce. So, you know, this could be a big thing for Zoom. Also... The thing I'm most excited about is Zoom pushing more into the apps that integrate, like having like an app store on their platform. Uh, That's where you really can get a lot of traction is when you have like this open source, um, unlimited amount of apps that people can add to. Like you don't want to be a linear business. You don't want to – that's where Netflix actually isn't like a platform stock like an Amazon or a Google because, you know, it doesn't cost Google any money additionally to have more content on YouTube, whereas Netflix has to spend on every single show. Um, you know, Google just has YouTube and they, they host the platform and then people contribute all this free content. I mean, you can argue about whether the creators should be paid more or paid at all, really besides the ads. Um, But yeah, if Zoom has this platform, you know, then suddenly you have all this value creation being added through all these different apps and integrations, and Zoom isn't having to spend all this money for every feature to be added. Whereas if Zoom went and tried to create all of these different apps themselves, you know, they're going to have to spend money. Um, They get better margins when other people are developing it and just adding it to the platform, and they take a little cut. It's kind of like the Apple App Store. So then you've got Cisco trying to compete with Zoom because Cisco had had a product called WebEx, 
and Zoom blew past them during the pandemic because it was just Zoom was a lot easier product to use. And Eric Yuan of Zoom actually used, uh, I think he developed WebEx. And so now Cisco's trying to make WebEx a more compelling product. And they acquired a company called Socio Labs, which I don't think is a huge company. It says they completed the buyout of event management platform Socio Labs. Uh, one of the things Zoom is offering is now is like you can host all these different events. I mean, you can think about seeing concerts. You can think about ticketing for um, conferences and all kinds of different stuff on, on Zoom. So that makes sense that Cisco wants to be more of that kind of platform by getting an event management platform, Sociolabs, and kind of like freshening up the kind of sterile view of WebEx. WebEx, to me, isn't like a very, like, it doesn't look very user-friendly. Um, it says the U.S.-based Sociolabs event technology platform assists organizers to conduct virtual, in-person, as well as hybrid events with varying size of attendees and in different formats. So after the acquisition, Sociolabs team will merge Cisco's collaboration group. I honestly think they should call it Sociolabs or something like that. That sounds a lot better than WebEx. WebEx sounds very like 2000s. Um, but I think they are going to just call it WebEx and they're going to take a lot of features, which to me is a bad move. Um, maybe WebEx could be like the enterprise version and Sociolabs could be maybe the more customer-centric product. Because I just don't see people being... WebEx, I mean, a name, it sounds silly, but uh, it just... People don't associate WebEx, I think, with a very, like... Zoom just sounds like a better... I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm being silly, but I, I do think maybe a rebranding is in order for Cisco's products says Cisco added that event coordinators can also gain valuable inputs regarding re an events attendees so they're you know really trying to push into events sponsors as well as other events to gauge attendees interests by having a regular engagement with attendees across various events business enterprises can obtain valuable data regarding participants behavior and help in forging personalized experiences so, um, this, this is all in an effort to compete with Zoom. It says, uh, Cisco's WebEx along with Zoom Video and Microsoft's Microsoft Teams app and Slacknet Technologies has been substantially benefited from the work-from-home trend. And all these companies are, like, competing cutthroat to uh, retain a lot of that momentum. So, you know, that's something to... Uh, keep your eyes out for you know Cisco's involved in a lot of things it's a very stable company stock wise but um, you're ne definitely not going to get a super high growth for a company like Cisco uh, now we've got Intel Intel has been falling behind in recent years behind AMD and Nvidia they really have just kind of get, been getting it handed to them and they, as uh, in Taiwan Semiconductor, um, Intel is, I think, one of the few 
companies that's actually made chips in the United States, but they are behind on the technology as far as how how many nanometers chips they can make, and so a lot of a lot of their technology is being phased out of data center, out of devices. Uh, Apple is transitioning from Intel chips to ARM chips, and ARM is a company that NVIDIA is trying to buy, which may get blocked by China. Um, but yeah, just in a lot of ways, in certain verticals, NVIDIA is crushing Intel, and then they're getting another crushing by AMD, Advanced Micro Devices, on another channel. And you've got two really good CEOs, Lisa Su from AMD and uh, Jensen Wong of NVIDIA that are doing a really good job. Now, they don't make their own chips. They get their chip fabs from uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. One of the head, I guess, tailwinds that could help NVIDIA, I mean, not NVIDIA, of uh, Intel, is this chip shortage and the fact that Taiwan is under increasing threat from China and the drive towards onshoring a lot of our chip development because we need semiconductors that is like the oil of this generation is being able to have like we need a reliable source of semiconductors intel seems to be pushing into chip foundries and chip fabrication um more so and there's a lot of government money out there right now for that they are there was some news articles that came out about them possibly buying a chip manufacturer. The chip manufacturer has denied those claims. So I don't know if that's a uh, very uh, founded claim. There, there's been no hard evidence that that's going to be the case. Intel has said that they are going to be manufacturing, building chip fab in this country. and But that's not a high margin business. So we'll we'll see how that works out for them, but they they have a lot of catching up to do. They have a lot of debt, and I think they have to. They've been known as a good like dividend stock for a long time and a good consistent stock, and I think they need to drive out a lot of their value based shareholders, and they need to go into full growth mode again, and. It's hard for a company like that that has all this kind of legacy um, drag to really just kick it into growth style again. You, I mean, you saw Microsoft used to be a big growth, and then in like 2000 to 2010, they really went through a phase of just stagnation. I feel like Intel's in that, and it takes a really good CEO to drive a company back into hyper growth. And Pat Gelsinger, the, the CEO of Intel, who I don't personally know much about, um, he, he said uh, from interviews I've heard, he sounds like he has a lot of high aspirations, but we'll have to see whether that's hot air, whether he can actually pull it off. You know, you had different CEOs of GE for years saying they could turn the company around and they failed to do it. So uh, I believe it when you see it. We've got um, Nextdoor came public in a SPAC. That's a little bit older news. Um, but that's an interesting company. I'd like to go through more in the future. Definitely interested in that as a social media play in it and 
it catering towards hyper local and that being a very different space than a Facebook or a Snapchat. All these, as you could target ads to like a local community. And I think, you know, people are wanting to have more of a sense of local community instead of just being on this massive social media, you know, globally. You've got Robinhood and Social Finance have set up for their um, account holders. Robinhood, I don't know that they have an account minimum to do this. Social Finance does. Uh, you have to have like $2,000 in your account. But um, with both of them, you can get access to buy shares pre-IPO, which is kind of cool. Um, and I would actually like to pull up, if you go onto Robinhood right now, there are some IPOs that you can get in on early, including Robinhood's own IPO and in buy shares. Let's see. Um, they've had some come public in the past already. Figs. I think that was like a medical... Well, it, it, I guess it doesn't really matter if it was past because, you know, obviously these are public companies now. Um, if you get in early to one of these, that's when you can get shares for cheaper than when they go fully public. I guess what they're doing is they're buying a bunch of shares ahead of time because they can do that as a large company like this. And they can get... It's like um, when Snowflake, that cloud computing company, when they went public, by the time they came public, it, the stock had like doubled or more or maybe tripled. Uh, and people you know, were paying a super high cost for those shares. But people like Warren Buffett... Um, from Berkshire Hathaway and Mark Benioff from Salesforce, they were able to sneak in there and, and pick up shares for dirt cheap and essentially like double or triple their money the day it opened, which is insane. But now you can get some of that access through these types of tools. So there is four companies right now that are available on the Robinhood IPO access that is Riskified, uh, which seems to be a company that helps um, identify risks and uh, fraud, fraud risks and threats on e-commerce. Then there's Robinhood, which most of us understand what that is. It's, it's this broker that is actually offering this. Um, Outbrain is a ad matching platform software, uh, and Duolingo, which is something I'm actually personally interested in, um, that is a app software that helps you learn languages, and I've actually used that to learn some Spanish, and I think it's really useful. I think EdTech is a very interesting space that has not really been properly developed yet, and things like Duolingo seem to be super effective in helping people learn. Um, personally, I can say I took four years of Spanish in school and I barely learned anything because it was very low quality education. And I 
me spend a couple of months using Duolingo and it improved my Spanish more than those four years did. So I'm very much a believer in those sort of things. I think education technology and medical technology are two very important spaces to be looking at uh, in the upcoming future and the present. Let's see. We've got some new IPOs coming public. You can see, I've, I brought this up before. Uh, let me scroll through my my windows on here. Okay, so you can see if you go to IPO calendar, market watch, just Google that. Um, it will show you recently priced IPOs, which are things that are already public. So you can see what you've missed. There's upcoming IPOs that are going to come out, and then future IPOs is further off, further out. Withdrawn just means they never made it. Um, so as far as recently priced IPOs, here's uh, here's some I wrote down that may be of some interest to you. Um, these that doesn't mean I'm buying any of these. I'll, I'll probably buy a few of them after I've done some research if I feel they're they're promising. But uh, yeah, Let's see, we got. Um, these, so these, these are companies, once again, that have just gone public and have come out. This doesn't include all the SPACs that have come public, too, which you can find on uh, SPAC Insider. If you Google that, uh, it, there's a little icon with like a red, red tie and a, a black jacket. I use that, and I literally have a running tally of every single SPAC of interest to me for me to dig into and honestly i wanted to cover like all these facts that i thought were interesting and like i would be producing so many like almost a daily pod podcast to like cover all these so um i'm just gonna try to cover really interesting ones as they come up um i have so many to get to i'd love to to cover more and if you have any you want me to dig into and and talk about please let me know um, Twitter, um, Mike Satoshi four, and you can reach me on the podcast. You can leave a message, and also on YouTube channel at Sharing in the Disruption. All right, so here are some of the the IPOs that have just come public. Couchbase. Some comparable companies are MongoDB. Um, like Oracle database, it's it's a cloud database. I mean, if you are in IT, there's certain software and stuff you use uh, with organizing data and analytics and uh, using the cloud. And this is just another cloud company that seems to have pretty good margins, like eighty-eight percent margins, but um, not profitable and in a very contestable space, meaning lots of competition, but definitely worth something to look into. Blend Labs, uh, it's a type of fintech um, that I haven't dug into yet. CS Disco, which claims to be a technology platform for law, like lawyers, and to help that. So, I mean, 
there's a lot of lawyers in this country because we like to keep lawyers employed and busy. Um, so, I mean, more of a niche technology play, but once again, there's a lot of lawyers and stuff. So maybe something worth digging into. Vtex, Vertex, um, that seems, or not Vertex, v, Vtex. Uh, from its description, it sounded almost like a Shopify or something like that, which Lord knows we don't need another Shopify competitor. Um, you know, you've got big commerce, you've got Shopify, you've got Wix, all that. Um, and I, as a rule of thumb, I like to be invested in the sector leader, which is Shopify. I mean, they're just crushing it. Even though they're already big market cap, I mean, winners keep on winning usually. And maybe I'll invest in, like, the number two. But, um... As far as e-commerce, I mean, there's Amazon and there's Shopify. And there's, like, all these minor players like Squarespace and Wix and all that. And I don't think you can go wrong with having money in Amazon as a play on more centralization and, like, um, that massive scale. And then a Shopify who actually lets businesses have more of a direct-to-consumer experience. Um, otherwise... I don't see much purpose in going outside of that. But Vtex seems to maybe do a little bit different kind of stuff. They look like they maybe have some element of consulting. Consulting has lower margins, but that's also can be a good business. Um, it depends. If they're more hands-on, they might be a little differentiated from Shopify. Um, so you can look into that if you want. Paycor, it's another... Um, HR, payroll, processing kind of technology company. There's a million of these. You'd have to research whether it's differentiated. There's, I can't even think of pay. There's, there's so many of these. Pay some, Paycom, Paycor, Pay, whatever. Um, there's a lot of these kind of companies that handle payroll. So... You know, how, how do they have anything, any moat to differentiate themselves? Uh, in structure, this is one I'm definitely going to look at. This is in the ed, ed tech space. So none of these I'm like super interested in so far, except for in structure, ed tech, this and Duolingo, two things I'm in ed tech I'm really excited about. Uh, they look to offer a lot of different... Um, educational resources. So, definitely going to dig into that more. If it looks interesting, I'm going to try to do a podcast on it. Uh, Kaltura, this is not a company I was familiar with before I googled it and researched it a little bit. Um, just went to their website, poked around. Almost looks like they're trying to be a little bit of a Zoom competitor. Um, which is interesting, because there's not many pure plays of that. And yes, there's Zoom. I actually do have a little bit of a problem with Zoom. It's that they route a lot of their calls through China. And so I do kind of want to have a backup in case there was ever an issue with like someone like a Zoom, you know, being embedded in China at all. But uh, a Kaltura looks like it has a lot of catering towards the educational market. So that could be another ed tech that you need good video 
with um, with EdTech and you know Kaltura could maybe partner with a lot of different other companies that are in EdTech or um, maybe there's some niche they could do that like differentiates and like Zoom is really going after the business marketplace. Um, so maybe there's, I mean, I, I nobody's going to just use one type in my opinion. So, you know, there could be, there could be room for more and you don't always just have to pick one. Um, but I definitely recommend mostly focusing in like on the zoom in terms of the video space, but I wanted to pull up Kaltura because they actually have some really big clients. Uh, that's what I was impressed with. All right. So it says on their front page, it says powering any video experience, driving communication, learning, and TV experience for millions of users daily. Um, they highlight that they focus on communication collaboration that's the zoom does that so um, I don't I don't know what edge they have on that meetings webinars town halls video portal video content management creation transcoding management publishing analytics and security virtual events virtual event platform and online community portal once again I think they're this is such a massive space like why couldn't they you know make lots of money off this too um, and we've got media and telecom cloud TV platform covering software service and cloud infrastructure education maybe that's an area they could have an edge in virtual classrooms LMS video lecture capture and campus portal developer platform platform if they were a true platform that would interest me because then once I, uh, like I said before, you, for a fixed cost, you can just like exponentially scale. Uh, video APIs and SDKs for on-demand real-time and live video. So here's some of their brands that they already have deals with. IBM, Dropbox, Bosch, Halliburton, Thomas Reuters. Um, let's see. It froze up on me. All right. So, I mean, obviously, these are really big brands. SAP. Uh, Cornell University. So, obviously, they have some, some really big customers that are using their product. So, it makes me think, like, hmm, like, why? Why are they using this? This isn't some niche small little company then if they really have like, all these these major Fortune 500 companies using their platform. Now, Uber just uh, made an acquisition. Uber made an acquisition of, let's see, They paid $2.25 billion on a logistics tech acquisition called TransPlace. 
this um, this is actually an area of Uber that I was really excited about initially, and it didn't seem like they were doing a lot with it. Like I've never loved Uber's business model. Um, I have avoided investing in Uber. And the only thing that would make me want to invest in Uber, like I don't like the, the food delivery model. I don't like the, the ride share. Um, it's not like Airbnb where like you have an asset like a house and your people like make extra income. Um, it's more of kind of ex- exploitive exploitative business model Uber is. Um, where it's really just arbitraging, paying workers very low, and it, but just the logistics of all the food delivery and all, like, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. I don't see how they're ever going to make money. Um, I could be dead wrong, but I just don't view it as a good business. I think there's a lot of better businesses out there. But now, their freight area which is all this extra truck space and figuring out how to maximize um, and if make shipping uh, less than load and um, use up any extra space in a, a truck, uh, make shipping more efficient. Now, I thought there was some serious potential with that. Haven't seen that they were doing a ton with it. Um, with all this uh, supply chain getting gummed up and everything getting more expensive and all that, I think all this emphasis has been put on supply chain and I think they are realizing there's a massive market opportunity with um, I mean, that's I think Uber's strength is data and the ability to operate effective supply chains and honestly, I, I wish they weren't in rideshare. I wish they weren't in food delivery. I wish they just focus on supply chain and I would be interested in investing in them. Um, they've got lots of data and they've got a lot of good technology, but they're just in like some very, like, in my opinion, areas that they're not going to make any money. And it's very, I think it's very exploitative um, as far as all these people that think they're earning decent money and like, I don't, I don't think they are like, I think it's just putting all this wear and tear on your car and it's just becoming this, like, I I don't like the gig economy. (laughs) I'll just say that. Like, I love Airbnb because you literally are making extra money on an asset that you have. But as far as like, you know, people renting cars to go like drive around like crazy and pick people up, um, I just don't think that's a good business model for the drivers. I don't think it's a good business model for shareholders. Um, I think the food delivery is even worse. It's just doesn't even make sense to like, you know, be driving around for like a milk sh- dropping somebody off a milkshake. Um, just no interest in that business model. But this does interest me. I'd like to know what they're they want to do with this purchase. Um, pull up this description of what they're doing. Okay, so Uber Technologies agreed to acquire Transplace, a logistics company owned by TPG Capital for $2.25 billion. Um, 
It says this is the ride-sharing company's biggest bet on the trucking business, which I think they should focus on more. Um, I think they're trying to scale up this business a lot more. Acquisitions can be a really good way to reach scale and advance uh, your technologies instead of trying to develop them all in-house. So last year, Uber Freight brought in $995 million, which is, that's not too bad. Uh, TPG will receive as much as $750 million Uber stock and the rest in cash. Um, it's expected to close by the end of the year. So, Uber Freight will, with this acquisition, will expand beyond brokering loads between shippers and truckers and into more complete management of a company's logistics needs, uh, said Lior Ron, head of Uber Freight. I heard an interview of him on CNBC today. Uh, those added services fit with Uber's recent push into last-mile delivery of food and packages, he said. It's about bringing an end-to-end -end supply chain offering from the first mile to the middle mile to the last mile and doing that globally, he said in an interview. That's the focus. Um, according to Bloomberg, this is probably an attempt to diversify its revenue base since demand for ride-sharing may remain subdued during the pandemic. I mean, I, I think this is something that they can make a lot more money off of than the things they have been focusing on. So um, I really hope they are diversifying. I wish they'd sell off all their other stuff and just do this kind of stuff, to be honest. I mean, Uber's just been known to be very distracted and all over the place. I'm glad that Dara finally has been selling off a lot of the stupid things they've been involved in. Um... They were all in China, and they sold off some, some of their stock to Didi, which they probably just lost a lot of money on because some of those IPOs got shut down in China. Um, or not shut down, but they've lost a ton of money now because China's cracking down on their big tech. Um, they've had flying taxis. They've had an autonomous driving division. I mean, Uber's just been all over the place. And that's why I am not going to put my money into a company for them to just like incinerate it and light it on fire. So personally, I'll wait till I see more of an actual business model before. And when I actually see like a hyper focused like plan um, to where my money wouldn't be incinerated, then, you know, I might look at uh, look at investing if they became more of just a really effective logistics company because lord knows we need better shipping we need better tracking of everything i'm hoping that the blockchain can help with a lot of that um, if you understand some of that technology it really can uh, assist with um, tracking of logistics man these uh news items have uh <laughs> taken up most of the podcast um but, you know, I think they're, they're super interesting. I want to keep you guys informed of everything that is going on. Let's see. Now we will move into the, um, let's see, we'll move into the next area. 
which is this is something I got into the last podcast and this was um, so I won't reiterate on this part Uh, I was talking about Picasso which is a way to um, essentially own portions of vacation homes like in Instead of, like, buying a whole vacation home yourself, you can, like, with this platform, you can, like, divide it up amongst multiple people. Um, and then you can, like, show, sell your shares, essentially. So it just kind of makes it a little easier to own something, um, especially when you're not using it all the time. Um, and then be able to cash out whenever you want to. So these kind of platforms are really interesting to me. You know, you've got that. Uh, so that's a way to own assets in vacation homes. You've got ways to own assets in private real estate, which is Fundrise, which I've mentioned before on this podcast. Uh, I think it has like a $500 minimum, and it has all these different tiers. But I think from what I've seen, you can literally scroll through select different properties and invest in them based off of your risk profile. Obviously like a more, uh, something with a higher risk of defaulting on their debt is going to earn a higher interest rate. Um, but if you're nervous about, you know, putting your money in something more risky, then you can take a lower interest rate on a property that has a really good credit rating. You know, that's how these things work. Rally is an interesting platform that, and I just started using that, and I really, Rally Road, I think that's what it's called, and both of these have apps, Rally and Fundrise, and it has different categories for different assets. These are all, like, alternative assets, so it's it's really smart. For so long, like, we've been, like, oh, it's told like oh put some money in your 401k or your blah 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 like in your house those are like the only ways people have really had to invest and meanwhile the rich people have found all these creative ways to invest and earn a lot more money um so fractionalized ownership has really allowed for there to be a, a way for average people to actually get in on some of these things. So in this rally app, there's like five different tabs down at the bottom and therefore different types of assets that you can like fractionally own. Um, this first one is like, I would say, say like baseball cards and, there's video games. Like here, here I'm, I'm literally looking at what's what's being offered right now. Right now, there's uh, okay, there's a rookie card. I don't some basketball player. Uh, here we got 1998 PlayStation Grand Theft Auto going for ten thousand dollars. Trading opens uh, tomorrow. So. You can, like, buy these things when they first are put on here. Or, like, every once in a while, trading will open. And you can, like, get in on some shares. Here we've got uh, 
1987 NES Legend of Zelda going for 115,000. It's crazy. Like some of some of the stuff goes for. This is interesting. 1935 Enigma machine, fully operational. That's like the machine that was able to, I think, help break the uh, Nazi codes in World War II that um, Alan Turing had something to do with. We've got a, a Kobe Bryant rookie card from 96 for $300,000. Some Olympic gold medal tickets. So you get the picture. Ooh, I, I want to get on this one. There's a, lean, a lunar meteorite, which apparently lunar meteorites are very rare compared to regular meteorites. Um, so, yeah, these... Ooh, Halo. Oh, my gosh. 2001 Xbox Halo Combat Evolved. I don't understand how these are going for so much. This is... This is going for $17,000. I wish I had kept my Halo game from... <laughs> wow. That must, I mean, it must be in mint condition, but I don't understand why it would be going for 17000 right now. I would like to know how accurate these are. Like, are these just being jacked up because everybody's just trying to get yield right now? Or, But I think it's a cool thing, um, regardless. But I would like, there needs to be like some third party like saying what these should actually be valued at. Or is this just supply and demand? Like these NFTs get jacked up millions of dollars. Um, we've got books on here. I literally bought a, a share of the Declaration of Independence, a copy of it. Um, for it's going for two million dollars. I got you can get shares for like eight to ten bucks. Um, Grimm's Fairy Tales, X seventy five Marvel X Men magazine, Gone with the Winds. Uh, inscribed first printing. So you just got uh, Karl Marx, Das Kapital, Journals of the Continental Congress, Albert Einstein, 1948, signed a letter on God. I bought a, a share of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, signed, first edition. So this stuff's really cool. I, I got a, um, a pair of shoes, a share of a pair of shoes that was donated uh, to Kobe Bryant from LeBron, no, donated to LeBron James from Kobe Bryant, or, or the reverse, one of the two. I thought that was really cool. Um, there's cars on here that, uh, opening 723, 94 Ferrari 348 Spider, 126,000. I think I saw a Tesla on here one time. 95 Ferrari. 82 Aston Martin, BMW, Alfa Romeo, Acura, Ford Mustang, Lamborghini Countach, a Porsche Speedster. Whoa, it's like a Lamborghini SUV looking thing. A Dodge Viper. Wow, yeah, this is, I mean, it's cool looking through these. And it's cool because, like, stocks, like, you're just like, okay, I own a little bit of Apple. But, like, when you know that you own, like, a portion of, like, this really cool collectible, um, something that you actually are, like, kind of excited about. Um, I mean, I like stocks. But I'm just saying, like, knowing that I own, like, a portion of, like, H.G. Wells, like, the time machine. That's, that's, that's pretty dope. Like, I mean, who knows how it'll work out for me, but it's, I think it's really cool. 
there's watches on here. There's roll. I mean, a lot of them are Rolexes. Uh, there's Hermes bag. Lots of Rolexes, Hermes. A Tornak Revel watch. I mean, this is just stuff you would never be able to normally afford. Or, even if you had like $36,000 drop on a, um, a Rolex watch, like, why would you want to have all that in that one asset? When you, now you can own like a share in something. And, um, it's easy to diversify. Like, instead of like taking such a big bet that of a big portion of your net worth. Um, Joe DiMaggio's Rolex. Ooh. Pretty big deal. Um, there's wine bottles on here, which is so trippy, like, how much these things are worth. Woo! $108,000 for a bottle of wine. 2000 Chateau Mouton Rothschild. 27000 for 12 bottles. That is crazy. That better be some damn good wine. Mm. Is that sake? That's, that's, I mean, this is just a cool site. I mean, I know I spent a lot of time on it, but it, this is cool. Um, another one is masterworks.io lets you own fractional art. And what is up there right now? I went, last time I was on there, there was like a Basquiat. I've, they've advertised that there's Banksy's and like Picasso's and Warhol's. Um, let's see what's on here right now. But yeah, same thing. These are all fractional ownership things. And there's probably just going to be more and more of these. And actually, I was listening to a podcast today about a site called Vincent by the guy that founded Indiegogo, that crowdfunding website. Uh, and apparently it's supposed to be like almost like an aggregator, like a, um, like almost like a Google of alternative assets so that you can like find all these things on like one site instead of like going all over the place and, and looking, you can just be like, Hmm, because it's like, yeah, I mean, there's just all these different accounts you could end up making. Uh, let's see the, okay, so I'm on masterworks.io right now. Let's see what art we got. Agnes Martin, he's a pioneer of minimalism, highly influential in meditative approach to geometric abstraction. This is going for $4 million. Wow. Between 95, in 1995, it was worth about half a million dollars. Now it's projected to be like six million. Oh, it is six million now. This is initial offering was four million. Um, Albert Olin recognized as a pioneer of contemporary abstraction. Has been viewed as a leading German artist since the 1980s. Joan Mitchell, abstract expressionist. Jean-Michel 
Basquiat. I like his stuff a lot. He died really young. Born 1960 and died 1988. He was 27. Was it 27? Um, ooh. I didn't know he did that style. Yeah, John Michael Basquiat is widely celebrated for his inventive visual language that infused graffiti with high art. Wow. Um, initial offering $22 million, Appraised value $24 million. Woo. So, yeah, I just wanted to expose you guys to all these different asset classes. I mean, this is disruptive. Like, you might be like, oh, how is this technologically disruptive? It's disruptive because it makes things available to the common person that were never available. Um, I mean, it's just... As we're printing all this money, it's devaluing our currency constantly. Like, people have got to be able to find ways to build assets. And sometimes that involves being creative. And... Not everyone can buy a house, but you can actually buy assets that appreciate the same the same rate as a house. So if you took some of that money, I mean, a house involves a lot of like everybody thinks, oh, I gotta own a house to build all this equity and stuff. But like, I mean, if you could if you could take some of the money you would spend on a house and put it into something that appreciates like a house, then I mean, technically it's very similar plus a house has lots of expenses that come along with it too so i mean it's not the worst thing to rent and to but to plug your money into some really good asset classes um the important thing is to invest whether it's owning a house whether it's owning shares of paintings whether it's owning stocks you got to own something though you can't just rent and you can't just spend your money like it's I mean you can't get ahead without having equity in something because when we print all this money the stuff the equity stuff goes up or I mean it essentially if you look at the monetary supply it's going up with the monetary supply it's not going it's not everybody thinks it's skyrocketing but it's it's because we're printing seven trillion dollars well, guess what? Those assets are going to rise. It's like if you put a, a boat on the water and you raise the water level like by five feet, the boat's going to rise with the water level. But having cash is like having a yardstick and marking it at the water level. And as the water goes up, that marking is going to be underwater. So you don't want that you want to be the boat the equity is the boat and the boat rises with the cash that's infused into the economy so unless i mean that's that's kind of a rough explanation some some assets don't track it as well but some some rise more than the water does but i mean we got to figure these things out but that's why diversification is very key too. So on that note, um, got so many more things to cover, but I'll do that in another podcast. Um, thought that was, uh, some interesting stuff to talk about and I'll look forward to the next podcast.